if any of you own the money, pay me. Done this with you right now, but sometime during the course of it, it would seem a little too crass, I suppose. Shower me with money. Um, the uh, well, let's thank God, dear Lord. We're grateful for this time uh, together uh, as men. We'd ask that you would uh, help us uh, consider thoughts about what it is to be men and how that can be a benefit to the ladies. In your son's name, amen. Uh, and Mrs. Wilson kindly made uh, Rice Krispie treats. <laughs> this might not happen every night, but it you did happen tonight. Around. And uh, on the last evening, there will be a definite uh, serious dessert afterwards and cigars <coughs> um, provided. So, um, and there, we know, there might be some smoking and chatting afterwards. Who knows? Stuff of any, of any, in any of the given evenings. But, uh, uh, it would also be good for me to know whether another pot of coffee would be in order. Mm. Not really. Okay. I'm fine with one. All right then. Well, um, some of you had been through a Christmas time. You went through this back in 2006, um, many, many moons ago. Um, last time we did this was four years ago, 2008. Um, a few changes I made in the um, notes. I didn't change anything that was there. I added some things. And I felt the need to uh, approach this a little differently. We had, we had done before a one-day... Mojo Seminar, where all five talks happen in one day, hour-long talks, 15-minute breaks, you know, and things got, people didn't have time to ask questions, people didn't have time to think about it at all, it just came uh, on them. Uh, and second, and, and that allowed me, on some of the earlier talks, or the first talk is on the sum of all human desire, one on hierarchies, one on the blessed oblige, and then the two, two on the mojo. Before I did one on the mojo, but it was just so much information, I figured, well, one, that's the <coughs> crucial stuff about relating um, directly uh, to women. Um, but I also, and I knew that when I had it in one day, people didn't mind the, the, the philosophy stuff a few hours earlier because they knew they were going to get to the chicks within a day. <laughs> Since we're not doing it that way and we're allowing us one talk per night and give us a little more expansive time, um, I wanted to be sure that that how we dealt with some of the philosophy things was um, clearly being an underpinning to our primarily our relationships with women. Uh, so some of those things have been adjusted or uh, in the in the material. Um, what years ago? Uh, some of you know the suitors, Jake and. Nate Souter. Jake Souter and I were talking about this, oh, golly, it's been 11, 12 years ago, uh, in the library, and uh, he said something like, forsooth, you are an oracle, and, uh, and then he named it the Mojo Oracle, and then he said, you ought to put this together in a talk. I said, oh, uh, and she said, I'll get the crowd if you put together the talk. So that's how the first one happened. Jake Souter uh, pushed me into it. But um, as time has gone on, and as I have heard the complaints of women have risen up to me, they have said, why are the, where are the men? 
Now that's always been the case. That whenever a girl doesn't have a guy, she's always saying, where are all the men? <coughs> but then my daughter got to marriageable age and moved to Portland, and then she really realized, where are all the men? Because she was in Portland. <laughs> she desperately tried to get some guys to come over here from Portland for this, but uh, to no avail, because they're not men. Um, a lot of this has to do with what's, what's missing? What's missing in our thought um, that each of us, regardless of what kind of background we're from, what kind of uh, theological perspective we're from, we're trying to create a, not a theology, but maybe an anthropology or social philosophy on what it is to be a man in such a way that from the ground up you get uh, the necessaries for uh, understanding the monstrous regiment of women and, uh, um, and, and, and know what you're about, not just thinking, oh my gosh, they're magical creatures, I, I don't know what I'm doing, I break into a cold sweat. Um, though this is not a how to pick up chicks seminar, we want to measure the thought in terms of how the ladies think of it, or how the ladies think on it. I have interviewed a lot of ladies. On uh, one point, I, I'll get to it later in this week, I had you know, come to grips with and come up with a, an example. And uh, I knew uh, from other talks I had uh, asked ladies, is this a good example of what it is to be magnanimous or very romantic? And, and uh, I had affirmed in the book already that it had. And then I asked the girl, she walked into the room, I said, what is your favorite moment in the novel by Jane Austen, Emma? And she named the moment that I put in the notebook. Because it was the thing that, and we'll get to that, why that is important to them. And weird, because it's not what you'd expect. But the ladies are a measure of uh, us in many ways, and they will be as you marry and go on through life, they'll, they'll measure you out. Um, and how they respond to us is, a, um, uh, is going to be for a reason. And so this is trying to get to the bottom of those reasons. Now we know that, that <clears throat> we can sell anything with uh, a female on it. I believe Makita drills or Makita power tools have a Makita girl that for some reason a girl very little clothing and a drill uh, is, is somehow makes the drills move off the shelves. But uh, tying women to this idea is not a, a problem. It's not a what? You know, why BMW and a why does Fox, what? I don't understand. Uh, this, you say, well, okay, the very way they function, and even if you were a hot and tot, if you were a per Persian in antiquity, it doesn't matter. Women think a certain way, men think a certain way, and these are the things we hope are going to uh, uh, push us that way. Um, as we step into the philosophy aspect, or the underpinning <coughs> philosophies, um, some might ask, why those things? Um, the philosophies that are offered, I have four things here in the preface that I, I wanted to mention that women do consider. And I'm not going to say all women. This is, this is stereotypical. This is, uh, when I say researched, uh, I've watched it, I've asked, uh, and the like. Women have an awareness of the difference between a man who's got an idea of what's going on a man who doesn't, a man who's an accidental thinker, and a man who isn't. A man who has taken time to craft whatever his 
I don't want to say worldview, but uh, you might want to use that term. He has a he has an understood paradigm that he operates by. Um, they prefer a guy because they prefer security than a guy who's not accidentally going through life. He may be cute. He may make enough money. He may all sorts of things, but. They are not, they want to be free to cry when the, when the car breaks down, they don't want him crying. They want to know that they can just be an emotional wreck or, or emotionally reactive because they're protected by a guy who knows what's going on. Uh, whatever it's, you know, if he understands internal combustion engine or if he understands the world around him, men who understand the way things are, are a desirable element. So having at least considering, um, and what you're doing here is not being necessarily convinced, but considering. Okay, this is a idea that is up for your assessment, your adjustment, your uh, rejection, your acceptance doesn't really matter, but is promoting itself on the basis that women like um, understanding men. The second aspect of that the kind of thing that this philosophy deals with. This philosophy deals with the idea of government. When you establish a sexual marital relationship, you are establishing a government. It's, and when the little curtain climbers come along, it's a bit more of a government. And you're going to wish you knew how to govern when that time comes. Um, women can be difficult. Some are even called high maintenance. But, uh, this philosophy deals with the desire for peace as the motive force, and women, because they have a thing for security, like the men that have a desire for peace. They have a, and their philosophy is not just one of, you know, I, I have a philosophy of general cap capitalism. Okay, great. Um, that's, a good, that's a philosophy. It works. Some people are able to make a lot of money. But... This philosophy is sort of whatever you're going to be, this philosophy undergirds it with peace. Third thing, it's elegant. Now, that's just sort of a subjective thing. There are a lot of complex philosophies out there. The clean, poetic, elegant ones, the ones that just make, you ever read C.S. Lewis, you realize someone who has an elegant mind. Um, not that it's over the top and florid in its style, but it's, but, it, but the self-evident nature of the claims that it makes, that all of us can look at and go, okay, yeah, it, uh, that makes sense. It seems to fit what's going on. Um, women like the excellences or things that are good being, um, having that self-evidence or that, that sort of that charm of, of uh, easy clarity. Um, and the fourth, uh, maybe most important, it's erotic. And you say, uh, should we be talking about that? Yes, that's what we're here talking about. We're talking about the erotic. We're talking about, not the erotic like porn, but erotic like uh, what moves a woman. And you're going to find out later on why this idea moves a woman. Okay? And not the way we think erotic. We react to entirely different things. And when I cover those things in the Tao of Eve later this semester, I'll tell the women what you're about. But this has um, uh, uh, an aspect that we, we need to, uh, that, that aspect you need to consider. Um, I have a couple examples, both referencing Solomon here, 
one out of King's and one out of C.S. Lewis's um, That Hideous Strength. Um, the first one out of King's is where Balkis, which is uh, the name the Muslims gave the Queen of Sheba, it's not in the scriptures, um, meets with Solomon. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold, precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king which he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings, which he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, The report is true, which I heard in my own land of your affairs and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report which I heard. Happy are your wives. And he had considerable. Now, uh, basically, you're looking at someone, and, and, and in legend, you know, I don't believe this is true, but in legend, this is such a, you might say, an erotically charged moment, the idea of a woman with a lot of questions just being overpowered by the man's wisdom. And she, in the Bible, she assigns that as a creative, at least in part, of the happiness of his wives. They, the legend has it that they did the, you know, he seduced her and got her pregnant, and the line of kings in Ethiopia were supposedly descended from Solomon and Balkis, but, I mean, that's a much, much later legend. Um, the, uh, we, we, we don't realize sometimes the kind of things that make a woman feel um, excited. The second thing out of Lewis's uh, um, That Hideous Strength is a scene where Jane Studdock, who is a difficult, independent, feminist wife with trouble with her husband, um, and she has, they have split up. He has gone off to Belbury, uh, uh, the bad guys, hideout, and she has gone to this Christian place, St. Anne's on the Hill, and she finally meets the head of it, Ransom, who is the director. And he's just, this is the scene of her meeting him for the first time. Miss Ironwood raised her hand to knock on the door. Jane thought to herself, be careful, don't let, don't get let in for anything. All these long passages and low voices will make a fool of you. If you don't look out, you will become another of this man's female adorers. Before her eyes had taken it in, I skipped some, uh, some verbiage there that, that we didn't need to read. Um, before her eyes had taken it in, she was annoyed and in a way ashamed to see that Miss Ironwood was courtesying. I won't, contended in Jane's mind with, I can't, for it had been true in her dream. She couldn't. This is the young lady, sir, said Miss Ironwood. Jane looked and instantly her world was unmade. She had, or so she had believed, disliked bearded faces except for old men with white hair, but that was because she had long since forgotten the imagined Arthur of her childhood and the imagined Solomon, too. Solomon, for the first time in many years, the bright solar blend of king and lover and magician which hangs about that name stole back upon her mind. For the first time in all those years, she tasted the word king itself with all linked associations of battle, marriage, priesthood, mercy, and power. 
At that moment, as her eyes first rested on his, her fa his face, Jane forgot who she was and where, and her faint grudge against Iron Grace Ironwood, and her more obscure grudge against Mark, that's her husband, and her childhood in her father's house. It was, of course, only for a flash. But her world was unmade, she knew that. Anything might happen now. We're going to refer back to this book in a number of places, because the book itself is this unmaking of an uppity woman into a um, obedient, desperate to please her husband, obedient to God woman, because of this encounter with these sorts of ideas, the idea of the hierarchy, the idea of the wisdom, and she, she's seeing it in those terms, the Solomonic thing of lover and king. Alright, so that's, um, I, I wanted to uh, hang that in front of you um, as, a, as a reason for thinking about first the sum of all human desire, which we're looking at tonight, um, that you want to have something. You want to have an understanding that you've crafted, that you've collected, that you've understood from others teaching you or from um, your own thinking about it, that you begin to understand the way the world that God made, the way it is. Um, we're presuming, uh, I have a couple comments here at the end of the preface, we're presuming that you can blow this out of the water by picking a rotten woman. Okay, falling in love with some girl you met at the bar after four beers, and she looked good in that lighting, but or maybe she looks really good in some objective sort of sense. Um, we're assuming that you're not going to walk yourself into calamity that would take, you know, Einstein and Solomon to get you out of. Um, we're presuming that you'd marry a Christian woman, or you'd want a Christian woman. Um, what I have here is three points. Some guy asked me a few years ago, what are the three doctrinal points you should look for in any woman? Because there are a lot of doctrinal differences, and sometimes you get interested in a girl from another church, and what are you going to do that? You know, the three doctrinal points are she must believe the gospel, she must desire to please God, and she must know where truth comes from. <laughs> That's you know, a pretty simple list. It can apply to any, any Christian denomination you could think of. You'd want these three clear in her. Because if you disagreed with her on any key point, she knows where truth comes from. She wants to please God. She is a Christian. And if you have the wherewithal to appeal to her on the basis of where she knows truth comes from, you can lead her places. If she, if she strikes that from the list and holds to whatever her doctrinal affections are from being raised, mm, good luck to you. Because she's not holding it on the basis of she knows where truth comes from. She's holding it on the basis of that's what daddy told her. You know, that's what, you know, my church believes. So you want to be, you know, I, 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 I don't want you to step into um, extra calamity than what you need. Um, uh, you're going to have a difficult enough time with the best of all possible women. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, um, I've been married 30, it'll be 34 years <coughs> this summer. And uh, the best of all possible women. And it isn't always easy. It isn't always, you don't always have the answers. You don't always know what you're doing. 
the things that the guy basically, we had this assignment in Drones a few weeks ago where we asked, well, what would you expect for any guy approaching you about your daughter? And then we had to come up with three things, so I came up with these three things, which were sort of responsive to the things I would like to see any guy marry in a girl. One, that he re retains a high percentage of what he encounters. In other words, he knows he's collecting, not just knowing where truth comes from, he collects truth. He, he, he is a guy who picks up, and it doesn't matter what area of information, that he knows that when he sees something, he wants to remember it, he wants to tie it together. He also functions by reason, not passion. That he's not somebody who's a, you know, he, he, he resorts to his reason. And lastly, that he be wit, a witty person. And not just because I don't want family reunions to be unbearable, but I, I want to have um, someone who's familiar enough with what he knows to be true that he can rearrange it. That's what a wit is. Not someone funny, someone who's a wit, like Oscar Wilde. Not Oscar Wilde's moral character, but um, someone who knows enough about the way humanity is that he could rearrange it with. Um, but those are, th you know, the, the, when you look at those sorts of things, um, some basic uh, exclusivity is going to be uh, used by you, who you are, who the girl you're interested in is, or who you're married to, three of you are married. Um, uh, you want to have those sorts of things be your bedrock assumption. That might not be this list, but it's going to be some kind of bedrock assumption. Your house is going to, or your desired house is going to function on some, um, on some basis. The rest of this is you understanding inside of you what your, what you're thinking like what you're going to appeal to when you're going through uh, an argument with the spouse, or uh, how do you deal with uh, your world. So let's look at <clears throat> the sum of all human desire. Um, I want to offer this as a, as a description of what you have become and why you have become it. So the things that you are that are unacceptable, you know where to go to fix it. And the things that are acceptable, the things that you would like to keep, you know why they're there in your life. They're not just, you're not just a blank uh, individual that can switch out anything they want to switch out. You're, a, you're the sum total of what you've become here in your 20s. Um, basically, every man has um, the knowledge that they exist. Now, whether you're a Cartesian, I think, therefore I am, or you ever tried to prove your own existence. Um, proving your own existence is not an easy task. So, but hold it, I saw myself in the mirror this morning. Um, when you really get down to the question, it's a difficult one. I'd like to suggest you go about it a little bit differently because you don't have to doubt you exist because it doesn't matter if you doubt you do, you'll come back to one thing and that is that you feel. And you know that you're not the table that you're leaning on because you feel it on one side of that point of impact, you do not feel it on the other. You do not feel what the table is experiencing. You only feel the things that come across your battery of senses, through your eyes, skin, ears, whatever. You, that's what you 
that's what you um, take in. And that tells you you are a self. Everything else is other. There's a distinction between that which is felt and that which is not felt. <clears throat> you, you came out of the chute, there you were, puking in your mother's arms, and you started feeling. And that is the line of existence. Now, this is a... Um, probably this point infects far more of what we go through in the mojo, far more of what we uh, address when we deal, what we're about when we're doing things. Even the small things in life, it's about what we're, this describes why we're about it. I, uh, the Cartesian thing of I think therefore I am, I, I would set that aside as, as admirable as Descartes may have been. Um, I would say I feel therefore it matters. You know, whether or not you exist, even the non-existent you feels it. And feeling, the fact that there is a communion of sensation that you have an opinion about, even if you don't exist, the non-existent you has an opinion about it. And if, whether you exist or whether you don't, that present or absent agent is having an opinion about the things felt, and it matters to that existent or non-existent you. So even if you don't exist, it matters to you. And you gotta do something. Even if you're not there, you still gotta do something because you feel it. Now, when you feel something and it matters, because you know, some of the things are um, neutral. In other words, I, I would like to pick up that bottle of water and drink it. I would like to not put my fork in my eye I would like to not do a number of, I'd like to have some kind of control over this because some things hurt, matters in that way, and some things feel good. A lot of things are neutral. It's basically a pain and pleasure and a gradient between them. That is what's, and, and it's coming into you from a baby time on. Your, your diaper rash that you didn't know how it got there, you just know it hurts, and you can't talk, you can't tell your mom, so you, you just cry and she doesn't come quickly enough, whatever the case, very quickly you are trying to govern this chaos of pain and pleasure. Now the reason you're trying to govern the chaos of pain and pleasure, make less pain, more pleasure, is because that disarray, that chaos of the thing, that, that unpredictability, the fact that you don't control everything, means that you're trying to get a state of ease about you. You're trying to reach a state of peace. That's what your willful government, the way you, uh, my grandkid, when I met him at three weeks old, four weeks old, he was a limp dish rag. He couldn't, I mean, he didn't know if his arm was over here. You know, he didn't even know where it was. He didn't, if he had decided, I want to scratch my nose, he wouldn't have known that that hand could have been brought in and scratched his nose for him. Now, he's at a place where he can almost do that sort of thing. Five months, whatever he is, six months old. We are always trying, every step of our life, to govern our life to greater peace. Because even today, we're still beset with <clears throat> pains and pleasures. And now, as a more mature agent, we are um, becoming more sophisticated. We not only try to stop the pain, not just turn it off 
you know, we try to avoid it. We try to frustrate its designs. We try to understand what will hurt. When you remember, when you learned how to walk, you did some pretty courageous things. My oldest son, Davis, fell like a, he fell like a tree when he fell. He didn't break at the knees. There was no, there's no hip action, no knee action. It wasn't crumple, just over like a, a, a British guard at Buckingham Palace who paints. That gave, every time he went down, he went down and the head was the first thing that touched the ground. You begin to realize, hey, I better stop doing that. And so we become more sophisticated about how we handle it. And when you like the Gerber pears more than the Gerber peas, you spit the peas out all over the room and you get all smiley and coo and make your mother happy when you eat the pears or the bananas. So the, the sophistication that grows um, starts to become a, well, it's, it, it's, it becomes your habit. Everything you learn, you're learning how to great, more greatly govern your, move, your, your gross motor movements, your fine motor movements. Everything is designed to get you more peace. Now this pattern of existence, this government, which I say when you marry a woman, it's what you marry. You marry a government. You, you, decide, you decide that you're going to govern more than you. It's a mature extension of, um, of this very thing. And if you don't realize what kind of problems beset those choices, because when you're, when you're faced with pain and pleasure, um, when people are really, really rich, uh, like movie stars and such, they just uh, can buy every pleasure they want. They can buy liposuction, they can buy body waxing, they can buy uh, fake tans, they can buy extra boobs, they can buy anything they want. They can buy a jet ski, they can buy a boat, they can buy a million dollar house. And you'll notice these things, they're not, they are things that are entirely geared to the pleasures of life. Because one of the basic problems you get into, and I warn you about this because again, where we're moving towards womankind is about what kind of government you'll be establishing. There's a distinction between inventory and arrangement. An inventory mind just looks at the quality and quantity of the thing. And it, he has a, a, a box over here called pain, and he has a box over here called pleasure, and he wants to have few, as few things possible drop into the pain thing, so he he works out, and he um, he goes to the dentist, and he um, buys tenactin for his athlete's foot. You know, he's trying to minimize his pain and tries to maximize his pleasure. So he saves up his money, and he goes on a weekend to um, skiing or something like that. He's trying to get as much pleasure in his little pain. He just thinks in a raw inventory way. And so the wealthy, famous idiot tries to buy away all their pains and buy in to all the pleasures. But the problem with life is life is not, <clears throat> since the key, the key desire, the ultimate desire, is not the actual pleasure I'm having or the actual pain I'm having. It is, you might say, the crisis of need, the crisis of will, the presence of pain and pleasure created me. And that creates the ultimate or the over-desire for peace. So when a person doesn't realize that the real over-desire is peace, they go in for this inventory thing. 
they think I just have to get a lot of this and little of that. A lot of this, a little of that. The person who realizes that it's arrangement, not inventory, realizes, and, and even when I mention some of those things, the guy who works out, he takes a little, no pain, no gain, right? And we, we have these things in our mind. We know that if we work five days a week, and God willing, we have a weekend. We put up with certain things. We arrange our lives to put up with the negative to achieve some of the positives. We realize there's an arrangement. Um, there's a scene in Paralandra where Lewis, uh, or Ransom, the character, I don't know if you've read the Space Trilogy, um, um, but the, um, I recommend it. When Ransom gets to Venus and he's finding his way around, he runs across <coughs> a kind of fruit that he picks this fruit and he takes a taste of it. Um, it was like the discovery of a totally new genus of pleasure, something unheard of among men, out of all reckoning, beyond all covenant. For one draft of this on earth, wars would be fought and nations betrayed. It could not be classified. He could never tell us when he came back to the world of men, whether it was sharp or sweet, savory or voluptuous, creamy or piercing. Not like that was all he could say to such inquiries. As he let the empty gourd fall from his hand and was about to pluck a second one, it came into his head that he was now neither hungry nor thirsty. And yet to repeat a pleasure so intense and almost so spiritual seemed like an obvious thing to do. His reason, or what we commonly take to be reason in our own world, was all in favor of tasting this miracle again. The childlike innocence of fruit, the labors he had undergone, the uncertainty of the future, all seemed to commend the action. Yet something seemed opposed to this reason. It is difficult to suppose that this opposition came from desire, for what desire would turn from such so much deliciousness? But for whatever cause, it appeared to him better not to taste again. Perhaps the experience had been so complete that the repetition would be a vulgarity, like asking to hear the same symphony twice in a day. There are, as you begin to realize, it's not merely the stacking up of pleasure. Some of the sexual problems in this world, like homosexuality, are in this world because the homosexual thinks in an inventory mind. He says, the most sex means better life. And I don't mean to give away any trade secrets here, gentlemen, but women don't want it as much as you do. Okay? I'm prepare you for grim, grim knowledge. Even if you think differently about quantities than I think about in terms of the, uh, the ratio of difference, uh, homosexual men have found a way to find a woman who does by having a man be the woman. And he wants sex just as much as you, you do. And their inventory minds just say as much, as much, as much, as much, as much, and AIDS becomes a problem and people are destroyed lives and depression and suicide. They have gone after the fruit again and again and again not realizing that pleasure is not the thing we serve. Pleasure is the, you might, and the pain is catalyst to what we serve. Our will serves the gaining of peace. What I have here, a quote from Aristotle and a quote from Augustine. Aristotle says, hence we ought to have been brought up in a particular way from our very youth, as Plato says, so as both to delight in and be pained by the things we ought. But this is right education. And Augustine says, 
and thus, and I'm not a fan of Augustine, but he's great on this, and, this, and thus beauty, which is indeed God's handiwork, is only a temporal, carnal, and lower kind of good, is not fitly loved in preference to God, the eternal, spiritual, and unchangeable good. When the miser prefers his gold to justice, it is through no fault of the gold, but of the man, and so with every created thing. For though it, may, it be good, it may be loved with an evil as well as a good love. It is loved rightly when it is loved ordinately, evilly when inordinately. That, that kind of thought, when you realize so many things about, like I was saying about uh, what a woman's basic doctrinal place should be and what your basic character should be, some things ought to be present in your lives with a, with a woman. You should have a default drive to the pleasure of God, holiness. You should have a default drive to understanding that I'm serving peace, I'm not serving the gain of satisfaction. I'm not just serving the absence of pain and the presence of pleasure. I'm serving the peace of my life. A woman will be far more pleased in a life where her husband knows that he needs to get up and go to work in the morning, needs to keep his word, be able to take on the difficult tasks that are thrust in at men because men, you know, get to go do stuff. That's why women marry us. Because there's toilets in the world that get clogged. And... Uh, and spiders that have to be killed. Anything that is unpleasant, you get you get deputized to. And all the way up to protecting our nation, all the way up to you know, working hard all your life. Uh, you're, if you do it out of some sort of cheated, I'm cheated by the world, I don't understand why I'm doing this. If the world thrusts this arrangement on you, you can feel depressed about it. But if you say, hold it, no, this is an arrangement. I want to make an arrangement of my pursuit of peace that puts these things in such, you might say, ordinate placements that they loved at the right degree of love, the right degree of amount. I taste the fruit once rather than twice. I start to say this, or I start to have a peaceful existence. And nothing, especially when you make that kind of order present in, in life, uh, the thing I order is the kind of peace I get. Uh, peace is a... Um, Peace is a quality of, um, people think that it's a stuff, you know, that somehow God sends you peace, you know. I just need peace. Go, dear Lord, give me peace. Peace is a reaction. Peace is a sensation you have when you put something in order. And you get the kind of peace that is equivalent to the kind of order. If I have domestic order, I get domestic peace. If I have military order, I get military peace. If I have, um, uh, if I maintain the rules on a football field, I have, I have order in the game. I, everybody's playing by the rules. I have, I have peace. I'm in a state of ease. So when a man understands that it's the arrangement he puts things to, in all aspects of his life. He can have peace in all aspects of his life. Now, <clears throat> women can be, by the way, as an aside, women can be a major test to that. Because sometimes, because of the books they read, um, they might be drama queens. I don't know if you've ever met or dated a drama queen. It's not a pleasant thing. 
but you, sometimes they put it to the test, sometimes they bring in a lack of piece. A guy has to know how to, you say, I know what I'm doing and I know what the basic idea of mere existence. I know the basic idea of mere existence is I have to, as an individual, arrange the pains and pleasures of my life and honey, you're being a pain right now, so I'm gonna to need to arrange this. How am I going to arrange it? How am I gonna pursue the things that put this in its right place? that makes sure that we, as a married couple, love that which we should love, and love it in an ordinate way. And not love it in an inordinate way. You know, this has been helpful for me in my marriage, because I've been able to talk to my wife about, since the marriage has been defined this way, I can appeal to this, and say, is this an ordinate reaction? Is this an inordinate Tasks we're going to. Sometimes women can make much out of not much. He says, this is the right degree. And you can pull things back. When you have an idea of what is shaping life itself, this is what is claiming in the sum of all human desires, this is the shape of life itself. Not, not a particular theology about life, not a particular religious experience, but just life. I can explain this to a non-believer. He has feelings too, and his life matters to him too. And he wants peace, too. Everything he does. We find that as Christians, we have found... Well, we'll get to that in a minute. The basic nature of the presence of this will. Because to govern something, I have to have a will. Right? I have to have will and willpower. That's what the kid realizes when he finally learns that that hand can come scratch his nose. He has willed that which he has power over to do something for him. And the presence of will you know, is existing on some basic things that I have listed here. <clears throat> Four things. Synchronization, non-synchronization, incompleteness, and movement. So the first part is pretty easy to grasp. Okay, I, I feel things. I got with you there. That felt good. That felt bad. Yeah, I should arrange stuff. I, need, I shouldn't just stack up a lot of pleasures over minimal pains. I should actually arrange my life because peace is the result of that government. This is describing why you even have this facility in yourself to do that. Synchronization refers to the fact that I am synchronized, my will and my hand, that which I have command over, is synchronized with my, with my willing agent. I can make it do. And I know that the Rice Krispie Treats are not me because they don't obey what I'm thinking. But why doesn't it put itself in my mouth? Well, it's not synchronized with me. The thing that is... You begin to know who a person is by the fact that he's got control over it. Have you ever done that where you've tied your hand into... Did something like that. I don't know. My limber used to be. And then somebody points at a finger and you try to pick that finger up. Or you're in a somebody's in a big heap of wrestling match and there's all sorts of bodies in there and you're they say, whose hand is that? And you poke it. And the person that feels it, the person that can move and respond, yes, that's my hand. You know who's who. You know who's got a connection with which thing, because what they are synchronized with. The non-synchronization in life is the fact that the other that you exist in surrounds you, but is not synchronized to your senses. Um, the basic example I give is your eyes are in front of your head. 
The world is 360 degrees around you. And guess what that does? I have to choose which way I look. Because there's not a synchronization between, it's not automatic. It's, it's, it's if I will my hand to do this, or will any part of my body to do that. You see some athletes, they're like geniuses of body. You know, you see some gymnasts or you see some play on the, uh, on the football field that how did he, how was he able to think that through? How can he throw the ball and drop it into the hands of the guy surrounded by defenders and just drop it into his hand? How did, how did he do that? Well, he's synchronized. He has practiced being himself. But we function in a world that isn't synchronized with us. Forces a choice. We have a willpower because of the synchronization. We have will necessity because the world is not synchronized to us. Um, it put, points out something to you as well, that I don't know what's behind me. I choose to look at what's in front of me, and that choice not only gives me what's in front of me, it denies me what's behind me. I can't look at them both at once. I can't feel everything. I have to be in Moscow or in Lewiston. I can't be both places. The world is not synchronized to you. It is able to be noticed, but you can't notice it all. And the other thing is the sensations themselves. This is something the scripture speaks to, the incompleteness of sensation. The scripture says in uh, um, Ecclesiastes 1a, and I have that here, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. I don't... It, it's, this, it's like this heat sink of sensation. It just keeps taking it in and sending it off into memory land or non-existence. My ear keeps hearing and it is never satisfied, never filled. So I not only have this, this thing of um, I, I can't take everything in around me, and even that which I choose, I cannot get satiation about. It's evasive to me. What that creates in you is desire. Because, you know, the, the, the not being able to reach uh, the synchronization, non-synchronization or the incompleteness, I have wanting more. You know, the, 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 so we're not just governing the right now, it's not just uh, the baby in the crib who has the rash or is being cuddled where our, our, our pleasures and our pains, and animals are probably this way, they don't have this longer term durational thought, they don't have the ability to really think about um, the future, and all of a sudden, all of that, that which we, not all of a sudden, throughout our life, that which we don't have becomes a state of desire. Now that, obviously, when we say desire and I talk about the babes, everybody goes, oh yeah, yeah I don't know I'm desire. I'm with you, Evan. Desire. Mm. Like that. I'll let you just meditate on that for a moment. No, it's a... Uh, but all sorts of desire. <clears throat> what am I going to do tomorrow? What's... Uh, how am I going to feel tomorrow? Um, why couldn't I see that more? Ever take a photograph of a sunset that you were standing there? Wow, God, get my camera. Look, look at the photo. That sucks. <laughs> you know, no matter, you got all of it, but you know, you say, that little shorthand memory of the thing 
that you, and it was fading every second that went by. The amount of information that is lost, everything you're looking at now, and now you've lost it. It's all gone. The thing that you had, that you'd taken in, gone, gone. We jot it down. We try to remember. We take photographs. You have so little of your past. And we're desperate to answer these questions, and our desires become motivators to this will. The presence of the will is impossible to deny. You've got the power, you've got the inclination, you've got the need, there's that peace out there. But the desire and the, the growing sense of den being denied these things puts a greater impetus behind our will to get things um, clarified for ourselves. The last one, the presence of movement. Um, movement... Let me do something here. Let's do some movement here. Basic movement. Uh, the colors. This is aqua, green, something. The, the book, C.S. Lewis's Paralander, is going to go from here to there. Okay? There you go. Movement. Now, how do you know it moved? Why is it not just over here? Because you saw it over here, one of those things that your eye saw but wasn't filled. You know, it went into some place called memory. You remember it being there, and you remember it being there, and 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 but you don't have any memories of it being over here. Those are anticipations. You project out there. It, both of those are concepts. The, the memory is a concept, and the anticipation is a concept. But the movement of things, because they do move in God's world, you, are, you have a body of knowledge that is being created by its presence in your memory. Everything that you uh, consider in life is... Um, because it's moving, creates a uh, catalog of information and then an anticipation about the next place. So not only is your eye not filled, not only can you not be synchronized with everything around you, but then God puts, what's he say in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he's put eternity into man's mind, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. We have got this thing called movement. The, the world is going to go from here to there. In the big picture, in the small picture, the book went from here to there, the world went from the creation to the end, and we know that exists. We know that, that the world is moving all the time, and we don't, no pun intended, um, that we are uh, uh, creating another ground of desire, another ground of this problem of pain and pleasure. Because basically, in the problem of pain and pleasure, I've got it generally right now. It hurts, it doesn't hurt. But tomorrow, it's got other pains and pleasures. And I'm not only trying to govern right now, I want to govern tomorrow. And I can't govern tomorrow. As a matter of fact, our Lord says, don't be worried about tomorrow. Today is enough trouble for itself. Let tomorrow deal with tomorrow. But you go, but hold it, hold it. But I'm aware of it. Hope and fear, those are pain and pleasure of tomorrow. That's all they are. When you say hope and fear, hope is pleasure tomorrow, and fear is pain tomorrow. Those are the kinds of desires we want to, uh, the, that which we don't have yet. We desire that which we don't have yet. Now, that speaks to a number of you who are single. Desiring that which you don't have yet. And you have hopes, maybe about a particular girl, maybe you have fears that, 
she thinks you're a pond scum. But you don't want the negative, you do want the positive. Now those things are uh, merely to describe what's going on in you that, um, uh, that you're automatically processing. You don't even, a kid learns all these things without being told, well son, your hand is synchronized to your head. You know, father doesn't have to tell you that. You have to fall off the couch two or three times and go, oh, gravity. I mean, you, you figure it out. You don't know. I, I, kids were falling off couches long before Isaac Newton figured out anything about gravity. They knew what gravity was, and they knew they could manipulate the 32 feet per second squared forces and learn to walk. Because what is walking but a controlled fall, right? That's all it is. You're going to fall forward and put your foot out. <coughs> and we learned... Just naturally, God made this world to go through these processes without you knowing about them. I'm just trying to describe the process to you so that as a kind of a, a undergirding, uh, might say, the, the sort of an, an under-philosophy, if that's the number word, uh, rather than an over-philosophy, an undergirding philosophy that, that says, I know why I am, and I know what I'm doing. I did it without being taught it, but now, since I'm, I, I want to function in this world like a man who knows what he's about, I'm going to understand what it is I did. Understand what happened to me. So, um, there is a... Uh, I have a section here, and I don't um, uh, necessarily want to spend too much time on, on the nature of desire um, and how people... Because people will bring up the possibility that you're not really choosing anything. You know, there really isn't a will. You're just a mathematical or an, an urge. Your greatest desire is what you choose. Um, I don't know how they can say that because there isn't a meter in you anywhere that tells you, oh yeah, that's your greatest desire. How do you know which is your greatest desire? The one you pick. The one you pick. Let's just beg the question. I mean, you just go, okay, oh, thank you. Uh, all you have to do is say, no, I don't. I picked my lower, des lower, lower desire. No, you didn't because it was the one you picked. No. I consulted the gauges, and it was only three ohms of this and four ohms of that. So I took three ohms. Actually, in desire, uh, since there isn't a method of knowing what is your greatest desire, and desires can't even be compared. What is it? A sexual desire versus a desire for food versus a desire to please God. What? You know, not only do I have any measure way of measuring the magnitude of the desire, I actually make the desire my greatest desire by my will. My will is what values. The will values it, and it becomes the greatest desire. Um, when you get to this point, I want to say something about uh, better and lesser people. This is a definition of what it is to be human. This is, every human does this. This is what makes you different from the animal. Uh, you can have all sorts of other views about the nature of the soul, but the Bible doesn't deny animals the soul or the spirit. Just We are different from they are, but these are the aspects that make us different. We have a, a appreciation of beauty, and we have a ability to philosophize. We have a ability to see sense duration at a level they cannot sense it. Um, this is what it is to become humane. A man is humane to the degree he orders his existence. 
Okay? He is civilized to the degree we are in an ordered society, and we are noble to the degree we are of an ordered service to that society. Okay? So you're humane, you're civilized, and you're noble. This is what makes a man humane, or a woman humane. doesn't matter. Uh, if it's the case, just like with tennis players, and just like with any, anything else you do, Christianity, there is, if there's a definition for how it is done, and there are levels to how it is done, there are better and lesser, better and lower people. As it's not like, I'm sorry if there's any kind of offense there that sometimes our post-enlightenment claims about equality are, are so demanding and so present in our thinking. This is, I'm telling you this because there are things about marriage biblically that men have a hard time with just as much as women do. The women are told they have to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and even though, I mean, the husband might like that idea, he still doesn't think of himself as her better. I've had people who even agreed with me, say, don't use the word better. People really don't like that when you use the word better. I'm going to use it in my notebook. With my laser printer. Um, they're a gradient. But the humane individual, the person who does life better, the person who orders his own existence, and we're not talking about better people like only kings and millionaires. Now, only kings and millionaires tend to end up seeming better because they ended up kings and millionaires for a reason. You know, they, they did something in their life. They conquered a nation. They, they, they invested their capital well. But it's not necessarily there. The book of Ecclesiastes speaks of the young, the, the, the poor and wise youth being better than the old and foolish king. Because the poor and wise youth is better because he's an ordered existent. The, the foolish old king, he isn't. This is something that doesn't matter where you are, the order of your life makes you a better specimen of humanity. You could be poor and be the better specimen of humanity than the rich man. It has nothing to do with those things. There may be a, a common thread that tracks along those things because a lot of things that make wealth or a lot of things that make fame or a lot of things that make whatever have an ordered existence to them and a lot of times the poor are poor because they don't order their lives. But it is possible to be the better human being and be poor. Now, your existence is a... Um, is personal to you. You're be, you've been made, you're, you're all guys, and you all have guy parts, and you have guy, we're all the same culture, we speak the same language. There's a lot of commonality here. Uh, you see it with twins, I don't know if you know this with your brothers, Bradley. Uh, they were born at the same time, virtually. They stepped into the same river of life, virtually, and came out of the same chute, you know. Same woman, same time, few minutes apart, I don't know if your mother dressed them alike in their younger lives, but and then people treat them and they live together. You know, they live together and they stand a foot or three, two apart for most of their life until they can go someplace else. And that's why they end up so similar in many ways, almost freaky similar. 
because they are experiencing what you experience, but they had the benefit of having the exact same gene code if they were identical. Same moment, same moment in the river of life, and they looked out at the world the same way, and people kept talking to them the same way, and mixing up their names, they're confused. <laughs> I don't still, still know which one's Adam and which one's Eric. I hope they were name tags at some point. Now, you don't have, that's what makes you, you. This, this phenomena, no one stepped into the river of life when you stepped into it, where you stepped into it, with the same circumstances of others surrounding you, with the same gene code you had, the same kind of reaction nervous system-wise, all the pains and pleasures, and then started to value. You are the only one that can. Not even God can know how you would value something. Okay? Now, I, I, when I say not even God, is that blasphemy? To know how you would value something, you have to share the vantage point of the agent feeling it, have sensed all the things that that agent sensed, and not sensed your participation in it. In other words, if God stepped into your being. God could know. He could just go, okay, I know he's feeling this, and I know he's feeling that, and I know that he stepped into the river of life at this point, and he went through all these things. God can know an awful lot about you, but he can't know what it is like to think about the things you think about, or value things the way you value them, because he has never been that only. His presence in that situation includes him still being God. You know, he is still present in the equation. He cannot give himself up to be only you. Because if he gave himself up to be only you, standing in your vantage, he would be you. That's how you are defined. He would be only you. Only, the only, only agent that can feel what you feel, value what you value, standing in those sensations, is you. That's what you're left with. You've got this moment all to yourself. Now you might... You might say that's that's a bit far. That's, that's that's fine to do. I think that I think that God doesn't need to know that sort of thing because we're not um, we're not. Um, what sorts of things are we talking about valuing? Everything. Every every signal that comes into you. You, you remember you're feeling all this necessity of pain and pleasure and right. the intermediate stuff, mm -hmm. and your your decision, we're talking about God's knowledge of what your decision would be, mm -hmm. your, how your will would act. Um, for him to know how your will would act, he would have to be you because he, he, can't, mm -hmm. he can't view your vantage point without him being still there. You know, he, his, not that he has to consider himself, yeah. but his vantage point is still you plus God in that situation. Wouldn't that constrain his vantage point and his <clears throat> inputs to be similar and constrained by the same inputs that we have? Well, uh, through, like through Christ. Put himself in our shoes because his understanding is infinitely beyond our comprehension. Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> and I realize that's a, uh, certainly a, a uh, not a uh, easy thing to address, the, the, what is the nature of God's omniscience. But um, I would say God can know everything that can be known. 
And the question is, can this be known? Now, you, one of the things that is claimed in the scriptures about the Christ is the reason he came to earth and took on the form of a man was that he could sympathize with mm -hmm. us. Yeah. Now, God already knew exactly how we felt. Being us, would he need to take on, gave up a quality with God as a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, took the form of a servant, humbled himself unto death, that... Those are things that um, you could say, God can know what death is. He is undying. God can know what temptation is, but he himself cannot be tempted, right? Right, so is it as simple as saying, just, you are not God, God cannot be not God. That kind of, God be you. But God cannot be you. Right. So that's the right. The, the obverse or the converse. Or the, the that that's the, the the problem that sometimes we run into when we want to make an overly broad claim about say one of the omnis. Um, well, omniscience is a great example because people want to want to say, "Well, God knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know." And take that to an extreme where, okay, does God know the female Sean? Well, it's not a female Sean to know, so no, God doesn't know that. Or, or I like to say, does He know the names of all the fairies? No, because there are no fairies, uh, and so the absence of their existence, or a logical impossibility, a round square. Um, he does. He cannot know. Yeah. And I could say it, but I, there's no way anyone can. Def they're contradictory. The question is, can he be in a situation where he knows what I will choose entirely? He may be able to predict very well, just like a good friend could predict what you're going to say next, because he's been around you so much. God has got that kind of anticipation in spades. You know, he's got that capability. But the idea of knowing what you will will is a. Uh, it's still, it's not a definite because he can't, he can't be only you. And he took on, in order for even to understand what we went through, he had to take on the form of a man and become a man. Because then he could be tempted. God can't be tempted. Christ could be tempted. Mm -hmm. So those things of, of, you might say, creating a vulnerability he did not have before is sort of an example of what we have here. All that does is puts us in a situation of... Uh, are we, are we still determined by our, um, and so these wills, because I want to set your will free um, from uh, constraint, not entirely, because we're constrained by a lot of things, but the ability for you to shape your life um, in accordance with the kind of arrangement God would want of you and, and good wisdom would want of you. If someone says that, Okay, if God does not dictate to you, does nature itself, some mathematical equation from the first atoms that were spun into existence, everything is going to be the way it's going to be, because sort of a mechanistic determinism. Um, I would say the, the, the problem is that feeling, the thing that is central to this, that if anything is central to this philosophy, it's feeling. If, if you feel... What do you feel, and how much of it do you feel? I give the illustration of saying, when someone asks you how much your headache hurts, do you say 17? Uh, you don't, well, I don't, there's no agreed upon, just like you don't have a measure of the desires in you that tells you which is your greatest desire, you don't even have an idea of how much of it feels good or bad. You just know it's bad or good, and kind of a lot bad or a lot good. It's a soft focus feeling. It lacks clarity. It's incoherent. 
it's there, it's really there, you're going to make a decision based on it, but its, def it's definitive nature is brought in by your will. You are the first anchor to it being a source of your action in your life. Um, it's like so the possibilities are of, of who you are are, are infinite. And, I, and I, by saying that, I'm not saying that if you want to be a watermelon tomorrow, you get to be. Uh, it would, we, no, it's, uh, I, the illustration I'd like better is it's like mixing paint. The sources are finite. The colors are infinite. You know, I, I've got a limited set of things, but we are such, we are so different. Where are we, I'm 57 years old and you're not. And I live through, you know, all sorts of things you didn't, and you'll be living through things people younger than you didn't. We're all, we, all, we all have the same finite things coming into us, but we have an infinite amount of mixtures that we can come up with. Um, we have to uh, address real quickly, I don't want to drag this on too long, um, take the last 15 minutes or so to look at these basic things uh, that enter our lives uh, here on page 7. Um, Before that, we're not just guiding ourselves. We're we are communicating with the rest of the other to try to get more information. You know, we send out signals. That's what language is for. That's what facial expression is for. We're sending signals out to the other to try to get sonar back, so we know where we're standing. We 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 need to have communication, and so that brings in more. Um, knowledge of what's around us and the other. One of the basic things when you have hope and fear, when you have hope and fear and you know that the other is not an area felt, we want to use the other as a buffer. We want to, the reason you buy a house is because you want to have an area inside of which you control more of the other so it's in places you won't stumble over. That will be where you want it to be. But the first one is the desire of the flesh. The first one is about desires that are, you know, like sex, uh, like an itchy leg. Uh, they're what you hunger. You feel it, and it's resolved by the sense that it was engendered in. Okay? My, if my loins become uh, responsive because she ran by in spandex, you know, then I have to say, well, the way that is dealt with is you have sex, right? You have sex to deal with the desire that sex, with the, the temptation to it um, was. You solve it, or you, we're uh, assuming morality here. Uh, is anybody who runs behind spandex? No, no, I wanted to try to paint a word picture. Um, but... I, I, I satisfy hunger by eating food. I satisfy the itch by scratching my skin. I, I, the lust of the flesh, the desire of the flesh, is physical for physical. The desire of the eyes, had a first John, these are all our first John. I, and it doesn't say in the Bible the desire of the eyes is this, but this is what I consider it to be since it's such a major part of human existence, is, is, the, is the aspect of art, the aspect of beauty. Um, um, it is a sensual desire, a sensually attacking uh, a feeling. 
that is resolved mentally. I don't, I don't eat the painting. Okay, I don't, I don't rub myself all over the painting. I don't, um, I can't do anything with the painting I, or the music. It's just coming at me. It hits me sensually, but I only process it mentally. That's where you get the idea of beauty. The wonder, as you are measuring the incredible order that is coming through to you through the painting or the, the music or whatever it is, you're processing it mentally. It's the equation of the order, the, the equation of the sensual order that you are considering. And when it becomes too much for you to handle, we call it beauty. The third thing is uh, basically has to do with where the pride of life kicks in. These three things are first John, the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and the pride of life. Um, those exist primarily in our social, pride of life exists in our social encounter. And the social encounter is um, out of this desire for us to get more information, our communication with the other. We, we want to bring in more information. We find out that there are better people to communicate with, those that speak English. The Chinese are a little bit difficult for us to get anything out of They speak in Chinese. So you speak English to the English-speaking people, and your mother especially will bring you a peanut butter sandwich if you ask her for it. Um, you find out that the society that has a kinship to you, that you're close to, that you can communicate with easily, is the one to... Um, uh, be closest to tribe, nation, those sorts of things. Now, when that happens, you begin to realize, and that's your solipsis, you realize that, hold it, the rest of you guys are feeling things too. You have eyes in your head, you're seeing things. You're actually looking at me. You ever get weirded out by that? That they're thinking the same kind of, e they have the same kind of ego. They're, they're there as a self. And in their self, each one of yourselves are as manifestly important to you. This is why the Lord could say, love your neighbor as yourself, because he knows he can count on that kind of really gratified life of service to this guy. I'm, I'm all for this guy. And I don't really understand. That's why people become, you know, so maybe I'm the only one. You're all an illusion. Because I cannot even imagine. But if we're sane, we go, oh yeah, okay, I'll grant that. You all have a self like myself. Now we have a problem. We're in a society. We like the society. The society benefits us because we communicate easily about the things we need to know about the pain and the pleasure. We can negotiate, pay someone for the pleasure, pay someone to stop the pain. We could do all sorts of things. It's great. It's handy. But there are other selves up to the same thing. And we are trying to order more of the surrounding area around me. And that involves other people. They're trying to do the same thing. So the, what does it say in James, when comes wars and fightings among you, is it not your passions that wage war in your members? That we, we're up against it. We're up against somebody who wants the same last pork chop on the plate. What do you, what do, you do when you have the same piece of territory of Bosnia, Herzegovina, and so you fight a war? We, we, we are, when we get into society, we have this we might say, the increasing realization that the various selves are contending for this arena of greater self-expression. The greater self-expression is not just that my will reach my fingertips, 
But my will, and I want to tell you this certainly, reaches to a whole corner lot in Moscow, Idaho, out to the sidewalk, both sides. My will. This is my room. I could throw you out. All right, Sean throw you out. You'd be bailing. <laughs> maybe you'd call on you a few times if there's, if there's trouble. My will. Now, that's why I bought the house. Because I wanted to have around me greater extension of myself and of my will because it makes me feel well, not only more protected in the peace I want to have, I have this buffer piece that before it gets to my physical immediate peace. So I, I, I want to have surrounding rule. Rule is broken down into three forms. My rule, our rule, their rule. You basically, in everyone you engage, you're going to be answering that question of where you stand in regard to them. Are they someone I need to benefit by ruling them? You're going to step into a young lady's life in that position. You're going to be her lord. You've got to know that going in. She's got to know that going in. Wife is the head, the husband's the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the husband, God is the head of the Christ. That's what it says in Corinthians 11. It's the, it's the structure of the universe. You need to know, and some situations, you start a business, you have employees, it's your rule. My rule of the situation. Second is our rule is where we get together to do something as a group, like a city, and we decided to vote something through and pay a certain tax, we can make fire hydrants on the corners. That is our rule. We do something fraternally where we share the energy. No one is in charge of someone else. And finally, their rule. You're going to find certain parts of your life you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. This is where it applies... Um, Frankly, this is why a woman marries you. She ought to, unless she wants looking for a son, uh, something she can maternally love. Watch out for those, by the way. Some women will get very attached to you because, oh, they need to be taken care of. They, 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 they want a kid, and they'll treat you like a kid. And I know it'd be nice to have them make your peanut butter sandwiches and cut the crusts off for you, but it starts to be, you become, your unit falls off after a while. Okay, that's, it's not about... It, yeah, it's icky. But one of the things you have to realize in every situation you're uh, um, every situation you're making a decision socially about this sort of this sort of role, all because you've got this bedrock thing: pain and pleasure, need for peace, need for government, expression of will. What's the nature of my will? How do I make the best arrangement? What's the best arrangement for my peace? Because it matters to you. Your life is being created because you feel, and that matters. And when we start to conquer, when we go out, the springtime, when the kings went out to war, we are going out to war every day to figure out how much of this world is going to be carved out and called heaven. I'm doing it right now. I made a notebook full of my thoughts. And I made you pay me <laughs> to tell you what that thought is. This is a great moment. This is like, it's not Alexander or anything like that, but it's a great moment for me. In your life, you're doing things like that too, in every social situation. We have to realize that God, with so many things God is necessary for, we 
we, we look at just the presence of ethics. How could I go on in a peacefully arranged life without the idea of justice, without the idea of mercy, without the idea of love, without the idea of all the things that are ethical that can't exist without the presence of a God? It's just my opinion that there is no God. I have to realize that some things, for me to have them, I need to find his rule over me. I have to find that submission uh, as well. Um, as you go through this life, your um, all this stuff, everything back to your baby time, you store away as knowledge. You have uh, a level of, you're not only uh, you might say arranging your sensations, you're arranging your catalog of sensations, remember sensations, to make your attack on your sensations more functionally beneficial to you. Man, yeah. Learn by experience, is that? Right, you remember. You, you, you learn by experience, you remember that when I touched the hunt stove, I better not do that again, the falling off the couch. We learn, we learn all sorts of things and we decide not to do that again. And the more sophisticated your memory of your life, the more, and some of it's going to be book learning and some of it's going to be experience learning, but the more sophisticated man has a better chance. Just like the, the more he collects information from, from the world around him. Now, these three things relate to men and women differently. Um, lust of the flesh. For men, it's the babes. For some reason, they just scramble our minds. We'll get to that on Thursday. Um, number two, the lust of the eyes. We want a beautiful one, don't we? Oddly enough, that has really nothing to do with the first one. We think it does, because you're idiots. But, you know, there's no real relationship for how beautiful she is and how hot she is. Okay, that's... But that's how men think. There's a, there's a lust for... The lust of the eyes, beautiful woman... Lust of the flesh, desire for her sexually. And thirdly, the third, the, the pride of life one, um, we want to have our relationship to a woman is as lords, you know, and as companions. The fraternal, there's a fraternal aspect in a marriage where you're really enjoying each other's co-rule, co-membership in, in, in things. There's aspects where you are the ruler, aspects where you are co um, participants, um, and uh, you don't ever want to get into the situation what's called the uxorious husband, the man who was whipped, you know, 3C, I think it was, their rule. You don't want to be in that situation. Now, in some cases, you say, well, what if she goes to the store and decides to bring home, you know, well, she's going to be in charge of certain things, but you have already delegated that to her. Um, the women, it's a little bit different. You know, I've given this real brief thought. I jotted this down. This is, again, just stereotypically. Women, for points one and two, it's about them. Point one, their lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, it's about their bodies, their beauty. Their sexual response is about point three, your rule. Now, I have this quote from that hideous strength. The beauty of the female is the root of joy to the female, as well as the male. And it is no accident that the goddess of love is older and stronger than the god. 
To desire the desiring of her own beauty is the vanity of Lilith, but to desire the enjoying of her own beauty is the obedience of Eve. And to both it is in the lover that the beloved tastes her own delightfulness. Women, it may help explain some things. Women, just like we're about how they look and how exciting they are, they're about how they look and how exciting they are. We're all agreed, okay? We're operating the same wavelength. The difference is between what kind of woman it is. Is it the vanity of a woman who desires to be desired, or the, the obedience of a woman who desires to be enjoyed? But, but for both of them, it's about who they are. They are the object. It's a great quote. It's a, it, and again, it's, it's thematic in That Hideous Strength. I don't know if you've read it. The book is primarily about sex even though it's got a great action story behind it about good and evil, but it's primarily Lewis is, is dissecting his view of, of uh, why, how to uh, restore a marriage in its uh, sexual union, and in its, uh, the whole book is about Venus descending, and everything's copulating at the end of the book, but uh, you know, it's, I know he's a Christian writer, but there you go. She says, as obedience is the stairway of pleasure, so humility is that in that moment the door was suddenly open. That's what Jane in this book learns. And it's an unusual, when you begin to realize they're not just a boy with soft parts. They're not just a boy that we find attractive. They're not just the opposite side of the sexual encounter, thinking the same way you think. They are really different and what they're expecting out of it. What they're, and consequently, that's why the compliment does so well. <laughs> because they, they, uh, they're about their beauty. And thank God, because we're not very attractive. <laughs> just, just saying, gentlemen, just saying. Uh, what I want to encourage you, just to, end on this point. Um, there are two things that you're going to be looking at in this, regardless of this in thought. And again, I don't mean to say this is the way you must think it is. This is the way I think it is. Give it some consideration. But if you think this is the way it is, that this is how things in the main work, you've got two things. You have is and ought. One of the basic reasons guys might think about the mojo oracle is, okay, okay, not saying I need any improvement. But let's just say, for instance, no one's paying attention to me. Just, just say, say I have a friend that no one's paying attention to. And that uh, friend would like to know, and so I might tell him about this stuff. Um, there's an is and there's an ought. And you want to be clear about what is, ask a friend. Because you say, I, I have done all this. I have reacted to pain and pleasure with a desire to govern, and I set up a government that looks like what I look like now. All the way down to how you stand, all the way to how you dress, how you converse, how you speak. All of that were choices you made on the basis of these things, trying to pull more of the world into an identification of your id or your superego or whatever you want to call it, your, your sense of self. And you might have made some mistakes. So looking at what is and looking at what ought and having that clear uh, distinction 
uh, between the two. You, you, you're, you're, you want to be answering in all governments who's in charge here, that's the basic question, and what is the nature of the law that they're following? What is the nature of the government that you're, that you're uh, taking care of? Well, 